This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, how big a headache is the hack of Equifax? And if there's somebody else who can claim to be you, based on what they've taken from this credit reporting agency, then we have a big problem. And in China, what are VIEs and why should we care? So it's a kind of legal quick fix uh, to the problem of foreign businesses owning uh, sensitive assets in China. But first, President Donald Trump has a rare opportunity to influence America's central bank. With the resignation of the vice chair of the U.S. Federal Reserve, Stanley Fisher, last week, the board there is severely depleted. Four out of seven board seats are now vacant, leaving the smallest number of governors in the Fed's history. Pressure is mounting for President Trump to name his candidates and to confirm whether or not he will replace the U.S. Fed chair, Janet Yellen. Henry Kerr, our U.S. economics editor, joins us from New York. Henry, before we, we talk about the, the choices for the succession, this is presumably quite an important week for the Fed. Just next week, there's a a meeting of its rate-setting open markets committee. Yes, exactly. So next week, it's widely expected that the Fed's going to announce the beginning of the reversal of QE. That is, during and after the financial crisis, it bought a lot of assets with newly created money, and it, it's, it's going to start running down that balance sheet. Uh, so this is quite an important announcement, and it's happening at the same time as all these vacancies have appeared. To, to, to back up a bit, Henry, I mean, QE, quantitative easing, was a policy introduced after the last financial crisis. And, and I mean, how, how extensive has it been? Well, the Fed's balance sheet is now uh, about $4.5 trillion. Before the financial crisis, it was less than a, less than a trillion dollars. Uh, so they, they bought a lot of assets. They, they're, they're sitting on about $2.5 trillion of treasury bonds and almost $2 trillion of mortgage-backed securities. So it really has been a substantial intervention in financial markets uh, that they're now looking to unwind. They said for a long time that they would unwind it uh, once... Uh, interest rate rises were well underway. And now, uh, with the interest rate rises we've had to date, they, they think that, that that time has come. Uh, so they're, they're, going, they're going to set the, the reversal of QE on, on autopilot. Presumably, the risk with this is that they distort or, or disrupt the market quite substantially by these large amounts of sales, bond sales that they're going to have to undertake. Well, there's a, there's a good debate on this, really. Most people seem to think that uh, the reversal of QE will have less of an impact than uh, QE did in the first place, because when the Feds first started acquiring assets, financial markets were pretty seized up. Uh, and as a result of this kind of strange behaviour, the, the Fed coming in uh, and, and buying lots of assets had a big effect. Now financial markets are, fu- are functioning much more smoothly. So people think, seem to think it will be less effective on, on the way out than the way in. The other thing to bear in mind is that they have meticulously signalled that this is going to happen. And as a result, quite a lot of the effect has been baked in. That said, uh, the Fed's position, particularly in the market for mortgage-backed securities, is a substantial fraction of the overall size of the market. And so uh, that there are sceptics who say, I don't 
think all the effect has been baked in and that we, we will still see some price moves as the Fed gets out of this market. But these price moves are going to ha- have to happen over a long period of time because on the, on, the, on the plans that the Fed has kind of penciled in without pulling the trigger on yet, it's going to take a long time to, to unwind these positions fully. OK, let, let's turn to the question of the, the Fed's leadership. When we were talking just a few weeks ago, your picks, as you like, as the favourite was uh, Gary Cohn uh, to be named as the, the new, new Fed chair, uh, and failing that, that Janet Yellen would be asked to stay on. Uh, is, it, is it fair to say that Mr. Cohn is now a less likely candidate? Yes, I think that is fair. So there was quite a, a significant day in the Fed race uh, after we spoke last time when Gary Cohen gave this interview to the Financial Times in which he was critical of President Trump's response to the white supremacist march in Charlottesville. And on the same day, Janet Yellen was uh, gave a kind of resolute defence of uh, the post-crisis increase in financial regulations that Donald Trump has said he wanted to unwind. So fr- from those two events, people have been saying that the chances of uh, both Janet Yellen and uh, Gary Cohn have fallen. I think Cohn's have fallen more than uh, Yellen's. Uh, that The president is reportedly not happy with him at all. And it's notable that in his remarks on tax reform, the president hasn't really referred to Gary Cohn while continuing to uh, refer to other advisers, uh, despite the fact that Gary Cohn's meant to be leading the tax reform effort. Uh, and so if that's a signal of displeasure, then it's hard to believe that uh, he's about to appoint Cohn Fed chair. So who's heading the race now? Well, I probably personally put uh, Janet Yellen still as the, as the favourite. Uh, but there are uh, other names on the table. I think last time we discussed Kevin Walsh. He's in a much stronger position than he was. Uh, this is a Republican uh, policymaker who was on the um, Fed board during the financial crisis and was actually a kind of a very close to Ben Bernanke during the financial crisis. He's also uh, been more hawkish in his recent comments, which I think is a, might be a concern for financial markets were he were he appointed. But he, he's the most obvious beneficiary of the stock of both Cohn and Yellen for, falling at the same time uh, as they seem to a few weeks ago. And what impact does Mr. Fisher's resignation from personal reasons, we understand, what, what impact does that have? Well, it's just served to underline, really, the extent to which the president's going to be able to uh, remake the Fed uh, should he wish. I mean, Stanley Fisher's term was uh, due to expire next year anyway, just as Janet Yellen's is. So uh, Donald Trump was always going to be able to appoint a new vice chair to the Fed. That said, what was unclear is whether Stanley Fisher was going to stay on the committee after he gave up the vice chair, as he was entitled to do. And obviously, that, that, that uncertainty has now been lifted. It's clear that he will be leaving the Fed altogether. And so that just ramps up uh, the extent to which uh, the president is definitely going to be able to influence uh, the, the, the makeup of the Fed. Uh, incidentally, that question about whether or not uh, he would stay on as a governor, uh, ha- having left the vice chair, that still applies to Janet Yellen. If Janet Yellen's not reappointed, she could still choose to stay on on the committee. Um, it's, it's unlikely, but not unprecedented. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thank you. Next, Equifax, the credit scoring company, has announced that it was hacked in July. 143 million American consumers had their data compromised. This is the worst security breach in the industry's history and could have a significant impact on those affected by it. The economist Eric Monkman has been looking into this and joins me in the studio now. 
Eric, let's let's start by sort of defining terms. What exactly is a credit bureau and how important is it in the American financial system? Well, credit reporting companies or credit bureau are very important in the American financial system because they keep track of whether consumers have paid their bills in the past. So they keep track of money that's been borrowed, money that's been paid back. Have they paid it back on time? Have they paid it back at all? And as you can imagine, this would require them, this requires them to keep a very large database of personal identifying information so they can make sure, which is very important, that the report is on the right person, that they're not lending to a different Eric Monkman or a different Simon Long who's asking for a loan. And, and how much of that database has been compromised? How much is out there? Reports say that up to 143 million people had their data compromised by a hacking incident at Equifax. Now, for these people, this would be information such as their date of birth, their name, their address, and the social security number, which is a very important piece of personal identifying information in the United States. Now, for about 200,000, there's also information about their credit history that may have been compromised. And for another approximately 200,000, there's information about previous credit disputes that they have uh, been into, which would also include other personal identifying information. So lots of data. So taking that, that first big chunk of data, I mean, presumably the big risk is that with that information, a hacker or somebody the hacker sold the information to could go online and steal this person's identity, basically, and apply for a loan as somebody else. That's what the, we're worried about. You know, the thing about credit reporting agencies, you know, we've seen this a bit this in the past few weeks of organizations that can't do what they claim to do. We saw that with Bell Pottinger. You know, we have a reputation management firm that can't manage its own reputation. Here we have a credit reporting agency that's one job is to make sure that when you apply for credit, the lender is getting accurate information about you. And if there's somebody else who has your personal information and can provide it and claim to be you based on what they've taken from this credit reporting agency, then we have a big problem. Indeed. The comparison you make is, is quite a drastic one, if you like. I mean, Bell Pottinger, at least the UK arm of it, seems quite likely to go out of business. I think Equifax saw its share price drop after this was announced by, by some 20%. This is a business in serious trouble. Very big trouble. We're probably going to see congressional investigations. The Attorney General of New York is having a look into this issue. It's going to be a big deal. And what is it doing to counter the effects? It's had a bit of a strange response. It's waited for about a month before announcing that this has happened. And now it's telling consumers to go onto its website and they can enroll in a service that will supposedly protect their identity that is a proprietary service uh, from Equifax that offers them insurance of up to a million U.S. dollars if their identity is stolen and they incur expenses, as well as monitoring if their personal information is used in a suspicious manner. And that's what we've heard so far. And consumers have been having trouble getting what they need, I think, from this website. Certainly, it's been a challenge for people. Thank you, Eric Monkman. Do you trust the keepers of information anymore? Please contact us via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. And finally, companies' legal structures are generally mind-numbing, but occasionally it is worth pinching yourself and paying attention. 
Take variable interest entities, or VIEs, a kind of corporate architecture used mainly by China's tech firms, including its two superstars, Alibaba and Tencent. Largely unnoticed, VIEs have become incredibly important. Investors outside of China have about $1 trillion at stake in firms that use them. Patrick Fowles, Schumpeter columnist, can explain all. Uh, hello, Patrick. Hello, Simon. Um, to start with, a very basic question. What on earth are VIEs, the latest thing we've never heard of that we should be worried about? Well, to understand the origins of VIEs, you have to go slightly back in time. A lot of Chinese companies uh, wanted to list their shares on big global stock markets, mainly New York and Hong Kong. So they set up holding companies abroad. But by doing that, they became foreign entities in the eyes of China, which then disqualified them from owning sensitive assets in China. So VIEs were the answer to that. And essentially, the key sensitive assets, things like licenses and copyrights, are put into special legal entities which are owned by the managers. Those are the VIEs. They then write contracts with the companies. And if you believe the companies, those contracts give the companies the effective right of control and effective ownership of the assets, even though they don't have the legal title. So it's a kind of legal quick fix uh, to the problem of foreign businesses owning uh, sensitive assets in China. And is it something that the Chinese authorities have explicitly approved, or is it out there in some sort of grey area? It's clear that they are tolerated at the moment, but it's also clear there's not really any body of case law uh, that gives them a solid foundation. And in fact, in 2015, uh, the Ministry of Commerce published a draft reform which appeared to make life very difficult for some VIEs, although that now seems to have been put on ice. But in essence, it's a very ambiguous legal position they're in. And is there pressure to change these arrangements? Well, it, the cynics, again, would argue the companies quite like it because it gives the managers power over these sensitive assets. And maybe the government does too because it keeps the internet tycoons who control these very powerful companies, it keeps them on a sort of slightly nervous footing. And, and maybe it's helpful for the government to get those tycoons to toe the line politically. Um, in the long run, however, it does seem like one of those things that has to be reformed. And although there are a variety of other legal quick fixes that might be experimented. In the end, probably the answer is for China to relax its controls on foreign ownership and also relax its restrictions on Chinese people uh, investing overseas. And uh, we'll see if that happens eventually. Patrick Fowles, thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. To read more about all the stories, check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us. In London, this is The Economist. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.